I've had the opportunity this week to go to two salt groups, um, one on Monday and one on Saturday, and it's been really helpful for my sermon preparation. Um, both groups looking at the passage, uh, getting into it a couple more times, hearing what other people are saying and so on. Uh, I, I think there's some outstanding things for us uh, in this particular part of God's Word. Uh, so how about uh, you join with me in praying that God will speak to us and that he'll really help us to take on board uh, what he's saying in this part of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're the God who speaks and that we have your word and that we can trust it. Um, please help us to grapple with what we hear, um, not only so that we can understand, but so that in understanding we can put it into practice. Uh, please strengthen our faith in the Lord Jesus. Please uh, strengthen our resolve to give everything we have to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, during the course of this uh, week, as I was doing my preparation on this passage, I invented two new words. At least I thought I did. Um, I've discovered since that one of them already existed, uh, but my definition is different, uh, and one of them is completely new. So I started with misunderstanding and in thinking about what I was reading, and then I realised that it was probably disunderstanding that I was reading, and I think a lot of people disunderstand it because they are quite happy with misunderstanding. So let me explain to you. Um, and if you want to use these words, you don't have to credit me, okay? You can just say, look, I, as I always say, it's a bliss understanding. Um, misunderstanding. There's, there's a lot of misunderstanding about Christian things just in our world. I, I think a big part, say, of the Law Reform Commission's uh, criticism of Christian schools and so on is because they misunderstand what's actually going on. Uh, what the agenda is all about, and so on. But there's so much misunderstanding about what a, a genuine Christian is. Uh, who are people who are, who are real Christians? Are they people who go to church? Well, not necessarily. You can live in a garage. It doesn't make you a car. Anyone can go to church. Is it somebody who keeps the golden rule? Is it somebody who doesn't judge lest they be judged? Is it someone who keeps the Ten Commandments? Is it a good person? Somebody who basically, deep down, they're genuinely good. They don't do terribly bad things. God must be happy with them. Is it somebody who's been baptised? Is it somebody who takes the communion? Is it somebody who's been involved in the right church and done the right thing? So there's a lot of misunderstanding out there. We've been talking about how Christianity is about, first and foremost, Jesus. It's not of these other things. So this must, misunderstanding is something we see now, but it's also very ancient, this misunderstanding. But I don't think it's simply misunderstanding. I think there is a disunderstanding of Christianity. And by that I mean not only do they misunderstand it, but they're unhappy with it. They're aggressive towards it. Um, they, they diss it, if you like. So the, the criticisms of Christian faith go like this. It's anti-science and anti-intellectual. And that's been a common criticism over the last few decades as people have thought about the Christian message. Or they say Christianity is just so intolerant. And they have this uh, belief that Christians are bigots. That is, they pronounce things without any acknowledgement of the facts and without truly investigating and thinking, they just reject anybody who's not a believer. Or they, they might... Uh, these days, a big one would be to criticise Christianity as being homophobic or transphobic. 
And so not only do they misunderstand the nature of Christianity, but there's a kind of hatred towards Christians that goes with it because they don't like what they perceive. Or maybe they've criticised Christianity because they see it a bit about grabbing power in society, maybe uh, accumulating wealth in society and so on, and they see the fraud and the hypocrisy that goes with that, so there's a disunderstanding. Together with this, I think, and this is my genuine word creation, I think there's a kind of bliss understanding. And that is, it's better and more enjoyable not to truly understand Christianity at all. I mean, I'm a lot happier if I don't even go down that track. Maybe you know this as you talk with your friends, maybe members of your family. They're not unhappy not being Christian. They think we are the ones who are unhappy. Their their lives are bliss. They don't need to be interrupted by Sundays going to church, having to follow these ancient rules in a Bible, being religious and doing all of these things. Why would you go that way, they would say. They have what they want. They have what they need. They aren't troubled by Christians who say that there are things that you should have in your life because they're quite content with the way that life is. So there's a bliss understanding that is they're happy, they've got their lives in check, they're um, proceeding down the path that they want to and they can do what they want. And of course the last thing you need is somebody coming in and standing in the way of you do you. And so there's a bliss understanding. Well, when you go to the New Testament, you need to review the nature of what Christianity is all about. And looking at a gospel like Matthew's gospel makes it abundantly clear that the Christian faith is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. If you hear people talk about going back to the church or I came to the church when I was such and such and they never talk about Jesus... Or if they say, yeah, I kind of believe in God and you know, I, I get in touch with God and I do these things with God and it's always about God. Or if it's simply about, yeah, I'm a spiritual kind of person and I'm in touch with spirits and, and I do this, but it's never about Jesus, then I think it's the right question to ask whether it's in fact genuine Christian faith that we're talking about. The Gospels, and there's four of them, so this gets into our heads, are all about Jesus. In fact, I've been told, and I haven't seen any of this yet, but I've been told that the Bible Society are going to do a a media campaign uh, this Easter called All About Jesus, or Jesus All About Life. Uh, And I I think that could well be a a good conversation starter for us if we start seeing these ads uh, around on TV, on buses and so on. Jesus All About Life. Well, Christianity is all about Jesus. Uh, The question that has been raised in Matthew, and it keeps being raised, is who is this man, Jesus? Uh, What is he on about? What authority does he have to do these things? And back in chapter 21, that is just after Jesus has driven out the money changers um, and he's cursed the fig tree and he's entered into Jerusalem to the sounds of Hosanna, they come to Jesus with the question, by what authority do you do these things? In other words, who are you? Who do you think you are? I mean, where do you get this stuff from? And the passions that we're looking at today is continuing on this issue. Well, let's uh, get it in context. And and I want to um, inform us, first of all, that this is not just 
kind of general interest questioning of Jesus. And this is not neutral stuff, right? There's antagonism at work here. Um, let me point it out to us. Verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. And if you come down to the next paragraph, that same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. And then you'll see that the question, uh, it's a kind of conundrum to try and trap him again. And then down in verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him. So these aren't neutral questions. They're, they're on the attack. They want to trap Jesus. And I think there are three types of traps that they use here. The first is the tax trap. Second is the resurrection trap. And the third is the greatest commandment trap. So let's have a look at each of these and see what's going on and how it informs our understanding of Jesus. Um, first to point out with the opening trap, the tax trap, is that you're getting people together who aren't natural friends. You, you get together the Pharisees who are the religious uh, leaders, they're the kind of people who are well-versed in the word of God, together with, uh, with the Herodians. And we don't know a lot about the Herodians, but if they are those who follow Herod, Herod was the kind of puppet king that had been put in place by the Romans to rule over them. And you'd imagine that the Pharisees and the Herodians wouldn't like each other particularly much. But as the saying goes, um, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so you find that there's an alliance. In fact, there's a number of alliances in the Gospels where people are united by a common desire to trap Jesus. And we see that here. So let's look at this first trap. Um, we'll pick it up at, uh, at verse 16. Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Um, it's likely that the tax that's in mind here, your translations might have the imperial tax or it might just say the tax. But it's likely that the tax that is in mind is a, is a tax that is to be paid by the Jewish people over to the Romans. Um, they're, they're kind of being taxed particularly because they are living uh, in, in occupied territory. And it was an offensive tax for the Israelite people to have to pay this. And so it's, it's really a, a trap question for Jesus. I'll give you another example of a trap question. Have you stopped cheating on your taxes? So how are you going to answer that? If you say no, well, you're declaring that you're still guilty of cheating on your taxes, right? If you say yes, then you've admitted that you did cheat on your taxes. So it's a bit of a no-win question. Well, this isn't exactly the same, but I think it works the same way. That is, they want Jesus to say either yes or no. And if he says yes or no, he's going to run foul of a whole group of people around him. But Jesus won't be trapped. And so he says this, verse 18, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? 
Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Now, the coin that Jesus asks for is a denarius. It's actually a very, very small coin. I understand it's smaller than a five cent piece. Um, but there's a, a blown up copy of one uh, on the front of your handout. So if you have a look at that, if you turn it just slightly, you'll see the inscription there, Caesar, on one side. And it's a little harder to make out, but on the other side, it actually says Augustus, Augustus Caesar. Um, this is the inscription. Whose image is it? Well, this is Tiberius Caesar. This particular coin would have been minted somewhere between AD 14 and AD 37 when Tiberius was on the throne. He was the emperor uh, of Rome. And this is the coin that Jesus points to. Now, you can still get these coins. Um, you can buy replicas of them all over the place, but you can buy original 2,000-year-old coins. This one is a copy of, of an image of one for sale in very good condition for $945. Uh, if you go online, you could buy this particular coin, and it's quite possible that this is the one that Jesus got to hold in his hand. I'm not saying it is, but it's exactly the right time for it to have been the coin. So we're dealing with something real here. Now, what does Jesus say? He says, whose image and inscription is on the coin? It's quite clear. The image is that of Caesar. But then he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. In other, in other words, You've recognised the authority of Caesar because you deal with his image in the way that you pay your taxes. Whose image are you? Give to God what is God's. You see, we have been made in the image of God. Yeah, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. He, he deserves to get denarius paid in tax. But what does God deserve? His image to be paid to him. That is, we owe our lives to God, I take is Jesus' point. Caesar's image, God's image. Yes to taxes, therefore, but so much more. Our money, our time, our work, our, our sexuality, our plans, our talents, our relationships, everything we are to give to God, implicit in what Jesus is saying. Well, the second trap comes from the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection. And if you want a really old dad joke, that's why they're sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. That's uh, just helpful to know the difference between Sadducees and Pharisees. Uh, but the Sadducees here, we know a little bit more about them. Um, I'll, I'll give you another passage in the New Testament, and you'll see this issue about the resurrection uh, pops up again for the Apostle Paul. So it's in Acts 23... And I'll read from verse 6. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, that is in the council, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe in all these things. And then there's a great uproar, and they start beating on each other, and it, and it goes from bad to worse. Uh, but the point here is that the Sadducees have a very restricted view 
of what they believe. And they don't believe in the resurrection, they don't believe in angels. Uh, they, we understand, though I'm not sure exactly where this understanding comes from, that they didn't even believe in the whole of the Old Testament, but they were focused on the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, what do they have to say? Well, listen to this. It's a bit of a classic, really. Uh, teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having any children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. And the same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right on down to the seventh. And finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Um, now, it, it's a clever puzzle, really. Um, I, uh, I remember writing an essay one time about the difficulty with the resurrection, and uh, I, I talked about that poem where um, the, the person dies and their, their body goes into the ground and then the worms eat the body and then the ducks eat the worms and then people eat the ducks. So the people are ultimately cannibals. So in the resurrection, um, who gets which part of which body, you see? So um, a modern version of this type of let's trap them puzzle. And I think that's what it is. Um, maybe you've heard the philosophical question, can God create a rock that's too big for him to lift? See, it, it's, it's nonsensical, really. And their puzzle here is a puzzle that is ultimately, well, it's not entirely nonsensical. It has its background in the Bible. Let me take you to the background, and I want to do this partly in preparation for church camp. Um, how so? Well, just listen to this. Uh, I'm reading from Deuteronomy chapter 25 and from verse 5. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife... She shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, This is what is done to the man who will not build up his father's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. Now, that's actually background to understanding the book of Ruth. Uh, you'll hear more about that with the camp, if you go to the camp. Uh, and um, yes, anyway. So there's, there's background here to the idea of the brother marrying the uh, widow if there are no children to carry on the family line. And they use this to trap Jesus. But Jesus replied, listen to this, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, Jesus' uh, answer to them 
um, has a, a little bit of uh, kind of chili powder attached to it, right? It's, it's, uh, it's pretty sharp, this answer. Notice he just throws in the bit about the angels as well, and we learnt from Acts that they don't believe in angels. He says that they've made two problems. One is they don't know the scriptures, and they don't know the power of God. How should they know about resurrection from the scriptures? Bearing in mind, perhaps, that they only acknowledge the first five books of the Bible, where does it speak about resurrection? Some would say, you know their Old Testament quite well, that you don't really get clear statements about the resurrection until the book of Daniel. But that's not true. See, when God met Moses in Exodus chapter 3, and we read about this last year, the account where there's the burning bush, which doesn't burn up, and Moses says to God, who should I say has sent me to them? God says, I am who I am. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. You see, to say that I am the God of Abraham, when Abraham is long past, that I am the God of Isaac when he's long past, I am the God of Jacob when he is also deceased, is actually saying that they are not gone. The, the resurrection is built into Jesus' statement, to, to Moses' statement, to God's statement to Moses. Resurrection has always been there. And of course, this is particularly important, isn't it? Because of the nature of Jesus and his mission. Here are these people who are rejecting Jesus and resurrection is absolutely foundational to what Jesus has come to do and what God's people trust in and what the gospel message proclaims. Well, Jesus um, astonishes them with his teaching. Next uh, trap, the greatest commandment trap. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with the question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Um, I, I think it's important for us to see this in context. Um, when the person comes to test Jesus with the greatest commandment, Jesus' reply is to say, well, this is the greatest, but to add, this is the second greatest. Um, and they hang together. They're peas in a pod. They're necessary together. In fact, you look at the whole of the law and it, it hangs on these two commandments because we'll discover, and you'll see it much more clearly next week, that the Pharisees are very good in their own eyes at keeping the first commandment. But they're appalling at the second. Um, the Pharisees get charged with being hypocrites again and again and again in chapter 3, chapter 23. I'll, I'll just give you a little taste of this, right? So here's the end of the episode. Here's the teaser for the next episode. Um, I'll, I'll read you a little bit from... Matthew 23, we'll look at it in detail next week. Verse 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, dill and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, 
justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Um, you'll see as we read through this that, that they can say, I've kept the law, I've kept the law, I've kept the law, but they haven't. And, and the way that they treat those around about them is appalling. They, they might claim to love God, which they fail in, but they certainly are not loving their neighbour as themselves. Okay, so Jesus then replies uh, with a counter question. He throws a question back at them. Uh, while the Pharisees are still together, he says, what do you think about the Messiah whose son is he? Now, depending on which Bible you've got in front of you, if, you, if you've got a Bible there, some of yours might say, what do you think about the Messiah? Some of yours might say, what do you think of the Christ? Um, which is it? Well, in the Greek, it's Christos. Um, but Christos in the Greek is just a, a Greek form of the Hebrew Messiah. They're the same word, right? Um, Christ was not Jesus' surname. It wasn't Jesus, son of Mr. and Mrs. Christ. Um, it was Jesus who is the Christ, Jesus who therefore is the Messiah. So there's the Greek and there's the Hebrew. What about the English? Well, it's Jesus who is therefore the anointed king. That's what the word means. Now, the background to this uh, is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, and I won't go into detail about reading this, but 2 Samuel 7 is a passage that we'll come to when we're looking next term at the Bible in 10. Um, and it's, it's quite important for understanding the nature of thinking about the Messiah. Jesus has been called again and again the son of David. Um, sometimes it's, it's been the crowd, sometimes it's been blind people, uh, and it's got him into trouble because son of David is actually understood to be a claim to be the Messiah, a claim to be the, the Christ. Why? Because God had said David would have a son and his son would be the king who would rule over God's kingdom forever and ever. Now, in the thinking of the people of Israel, they understood that pretty much in chronological terms, in genealogical terms. Uh, and there was a strong understanding at the time of the New Testament that the Jewish people were waiting for the Messiah, who was going to be a royal king who would overthrow the Romans and establish again the Israel state um, under God. But, of course... This would never have been enough because the promise to David was that there would be a king forever over the kingdom. Now, what does he say? Well, he says to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies under your feet. Now, that little quote in verse 44 is from Hebrews. Well, no, it's not. It's in Hebrews as well. Sorry, my mind just went to that. It's from Psalm 110, verse 1. And there's an inscription at the start of Psalm 110. It's a psalm of David. And as you read right through the psalm, it's, it's all about what the king is going to do. And so you'd imagine that when David writing about the king, he'd be writing about his son. And so you'd imagine that the first line 
would be something like the Lord, that is Yahweh, said to my son, who's going to be the king. But it doesn't say that. It says, the Lord Yahweh said to my Lord, that is my master, the one who is in authority over me. Now, it's a subtle little bit of theology, but it's, it's really quite important because built into the Old Testament, there is the understanding that David's son will, in fact, be the son of God. That David's son will rule over David. That David's son will be the eternal king over the eternal kingdom. And Jesus is making that point. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one would say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So friends, how do we go about living this out? What, how, how do we take this to heart now in 2023? Um, well, I want to start by asking, what does Jesus Christ or Jesus Messiah mean to you? Uh, sadly, in our world, and, and I, I know this is one of the reasons why school scripture is still such a vital thing, there are many kids growing up who they only hear the word Jesus or Jesus Christ as an exclamation, as a piece of swear language. Jesus Christ would be all they'd hear. Um, there'd be some who have a, a basic understanding of Jesus Maybe they like Jesus at Christmas time, that, that baby that kind of causes public holidays and presents and nice food and rellos and Christmas trees and all that sort of stuff. There, there might be some who've got a kind of vague idea that Jesus is some kind of new agey guy, a bit of a hippie, he wore long clothes, had long hair, a bit of a guru, perhaps a great teacher. But we do well, I think, to remember the words of C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis said that Jesus was either a legend didn't exist, or he's a liar because he's claiming to be the son of God, or he's a lunatic because that's what you call people who claim to be the son of God, you lock them up, or maybe he's Lord. And they're the options that you've got. I think C.S. Lewis was, was building on the teaching of G.K. Chesterton, who actually said that, um, that uh, the teaching about Jesus is that he's absolutely irrelevant or absolutely important. The one thing that he cannot be is a little bit important. You either give him everything or you give him nothing. You see, if, if he has been placed into authority as the Lord of the universe, if he is God's eternal king, then he only deserves one place in our lives, and that is number one, central, critical, pivotal, absolute importance. And we're not talking about an idea. We're not talking about an ethos or a philosophy or an ideology or a religious idea from the past. We're actually talking about a resurrected being that Jesus is alive today and ruling this world, that, that Jesus who came in saviour as saviour will return as judge and he will establish his kingdom forever. And so people need to be right with Jesus. What does Jesus mean to you? And the second question, I think, from this passage is like it. In fact, it's really the same question from another camera lens. 
And that is, what does God want you to give to him? What does this passage say that God wants from you? Well, he wants love from you. He wants you to love him with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. And to love your neighbour as yourself. God wants to be number one. This passage reminds us that we are made in God's image. That is, we've been made to reflect the glory of God. We've been made with capacity for relationship with God. We've been made to find our being in God. We've been made to understand the fact that we'll only clearly have our identity in the right place when we realise that we belong to God. And that's true as a creature made in God's image, but it's doubly true as one who's made in God's image and who's been saved and resurrected through Jesus. That is, God wants us to give him everything. What part does God, what part does Jesus play in your life? It's not a rhetorical question. I, I, I want you to ask yourself that question. What part does God, Jesus, play in your life? Is it a little part? Or a big part? Is it an occasional part or an always part? Is it a if-then part or is it a always part? What part does God play in your life? In fact, let me put it another way. Are there any parts in your life where God doesn't play? Are there any aspects of your life where God hasn't intervened? Are there any things that you keep separate? Are there any things that are kind of out of bounds for God? Are there things that if they were brought out into the open, there'd be shame before God and shame before one another? It's interesting that this passage talks about taxes. Tax time. I, I, I think it's, it's uh, time to ask the question, will I trust God and be honest? Or will I think that I'd be better off if I don't disclose? If I don't give all the information? If I put this down in that column instead of this column? It was only a bit of cash. Nobody knows. There's no record. See, does, does God have a part to play with our money? Does he have a part to play with, with what we watch on television or on the internet? Would we sit down beside Jesus and discuss the shows that we watch? Where does Jesus fit into these things? You see, God won't take second place. God doesn't want people who give him a bit on Sundays. He kind of wants every day. He doesn't want people who will tithe from their income. He wants people who recognise everything they have is his. He doesn't want people who will play a part. He, he wants people who have been saved by his son, indwelt by his spirit, called together to live for him. And that sounds really hard. And it is. Really hard. And if we had to do that in order to be right with God, then we would fail. 
But the great news is that God has reached out to us while we were still sinners, while we were failures, while we fell short. And Jesus gave his life for us. And he's been raised from the dead so that we might find forgiveness. Be right with God. And God then comes and dwells within us by his spirit to prompt us to obey him from the inside out so that our righteousness might be greater than that of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the Sadducees. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we confess that we do sometimes put you in a box. We, we confess that we don't always acknowledge that Jesus is king of the universe. We apologise for keeping you out of parts of our lives. And we ask that you'll move us to trust you, to be confident in you, to, to, to rejoice in honouring you. Um, if, we, um, if we need to turn back to you, I pray that you'll soften our hearts so that we can do that and, and do that now. If there's something that you need to come before God and ask his forgiveness for, then do that now. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that through Jesus there is forgiveness, that by your spirit there is power. And we pray that we will live for you, that you'll empower us to please you, to have our whole lives given over to you. And we pray that as we seek to do this, uh, that those around about will be pointed to Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen.